Please turn with me in your Bibles, if you would, to James chapter 2. Our sermon text this morning is James 2, verses 14 through 26. Before we read that, let's pray together. Our Father, we do pray that you would speak to us and uh, that you would speak to us through your word. And we pray uh, knowing that uh, we can only hear your voice if your spirit is at work in our hearts. And so we pray for you to pour out your spirit on us, to speak to us through the scriptures this morning, to help us to see Jesus as we understand your word clearly. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. James chapter 2, beginning in verse 14. What good is it, my brothers, if someone says he has faith but does not have works? Can that faith save him? If a brother or sister is poorly clothed and lacking in daily food, and one of you says to them, go in peace, be warm and be filled, without giving them the things needed for the body, what good is that? So also faith by itself, if it does not have works, is dead. But someone will say, you have faith and I have works. Show me your faith apart from your works, and I will show you my faith by my works. You believe that God is one, you do well, even the demons believe and shudder. Do you want to be shown, you foolish person, that faith apart from works is useless? Was not Abraham our father justified by works when he offered up his son Isaac on the altar? You see that faith was active along with his works, and faith was completed by his works. And the scripture was fulfilled that says Abraham believed God, and it was counted to him as righteousness. And he was called a friend of God. You see that a person is justified by works and not by faith alone. And in the same way, was not also Rahab the prostitute justified by works when she received the messengers and sent them out by another way? For as the body apart from the spirit is dead, so also faith apart from works is dead. Sometimes people think of Christianity as basically a religion of rules. Sometimes it is Christians that think this way, and Christians are sometimes self-righteous, judgmental, and moralistic as a result. Other times, this is why people reject Christianity. I mean, who wants more rules? If Christianity is merely a system of rules, uh, who needs it? The last thing I need is something else to live up to. Of course, with half a second's notice uh, or half a second's thought, you realize the opposite is no good either. What if Christianity had no moral guidelines? Well, that wouldn't be appealing. Uh, we, live, we live in a moralistic culture. Uh, people don't protest because they are apathetic to right and wrong. They protest because they believe passionately in right and wrong. The question is, what is the good that we are passionate about? We're going to talk this morning about the place that good works have in the Christian life. And it's an, in, it's an important question. My uncle uh, told me before he died in 2016 that he didn't come to church because he didn't feel good enough. There is this perception that if I want to be a Christian, I must first achieve a certain standard. 
I hope that no one ever feels that way when they come in our doors. But if good works are not a minimum standard, not a hoop to jump through, then what are they? And so we're going to ask three questions this morning. What are good works? Why are they necessary? And what do I do if I don't have them? And we'll spend most of our time on the middle question because that's the question James focuses on in our text. But the other two questions are also answered by James, and we need to answer them to understand that middle question rightly. Uh, The book of James was written most likely uh, by James, the brother of Jesus. Uh, James 1.1 begins, James, a servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ, to the 12 tribes in the dispersion, greetings. The 12 tribes in the dispersion either refers to believers who are Jewish of the 12 tribes of Israel, scattered throughout the Roman world, dispersed, exiled from the land of Israel, or to any Christian believers who are the spiritual children of Abraham and so continue the community of the 12 tribes of Israel, scattered throughout the world, exiled from Eden. The churches to whom James is writing seem to include some wealthy believers, but also many poorer believers who were taken advantage of by the wealthy in their cities. So there is this diversity in the church, which includes oppressed, transient, lower-class Christians, as well as Christians who were wealthy, perhaps more established believers. The letter of James is notorious for being hard to pin down. Uh, Its outline seems a bit fuzzy. Its themes sometimes look disconnected. But if we can roughly summarize, James is exhorting his hearers to godliness versus worldliness, to integrity instead of compromise, to being a friend of God rather than a friend of the world. James doesn't want us to be double-minded, trying to love God and. So he says in James 4.4, you adulterous people, Do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. It's either or, James says. You've got to choose. You can hear an echo of Jesus' words in the Sermon on the Mount here, can't you? In Matthew 6, 24, Jesus said, No one can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and money. Do you want to be a friend of God? Or do you want to be a friend of the world? Being a friend of God, of course, is a matter of faith, and faith can grow. There are degrees. James, in James chapter 1, says this, Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds, for you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness, and let steadfastness have its full effect, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing." See, James wants our friendship with God, our faith, to come to maturity. There is a a goal uh, of this letter, mature faith, perfect, complete, wise, living, active faith, a faith that works, which brings us to our first question. What are good works? What is good? Uh, If you ask a dozen different people to tell you what is good or what are good works, you will, of course, get a dozen different answers. Differing views on what is good are one of the things that cause so much conflict in our society. Is marriage good? Is homosexuality good? Are police good? What does it mean to be a good person? What kind of things does God count as good? 
When we talk about good works, what do we mean? Our passage this morning begins like this in James 2.14. What good is it, my brothers, if someone says he has faith but does not have works? Now, you'll notice that James doesn't use the adjective good when describing works, but clearly he is talking about good works and not bad. He's saying, what what good is it uh, if someone says he believes Christian doctrine but doesn't live the Christian life? And James gives us lots of examples throughout his letter of that good life, often by way of contrast. James says in 126, if anyone thinks he is religious and does not bridle his tongue but deceives his heart, this person's religion is worthless, faith and works. James talks about how we treat the poor, giving preferential treatment to some and not others, displaying the values of this age rather than the values of the kingdom. James talks about how we use our words. Sometimes we tear down rather than build up. James talks about how we handle conflict, how we fight and quarrel and destroy. But what makes a work good? Is there a way to summarize it and pull it together? You, me, the next guy, we can imagine what is good. We can come up with things we think are good, but that doesn't make those things good. Good is not about preference. It's about right and wrong. So what is good? How can we know? Well, James says in James 1, 21 to 22, therefore, put away all filthiness and rampant wickedness and receive with meekness the implanted word, which is able to save your souls. But be doers of the word and not hearers only, deceiving yourselves. James says, yes, Christianity is about believing. It is about faith. Receive God's word. Believe it but be doers and not hearers only, doers of the word. So good works are those works commanded in God's word. You you don't have to guess at what is good. You don't have to figure it out on your own. It's not a matter of trial and error. Be doers of the word and not hearers only. This really is extremely helpful, right? We live in an age, as we said, where we see almost violent conflict played out every day because people disagree about what is good. And solving that conflict is not easy. I've I've got no simple solutions this morning. But before we even move toward that, we need to figure out for ourselves what is actually good. If there is no God, then there is no objective good, only preference or comfort or choice and the indifferent laws of nature. But Christianity teaches that God has spoken. When we turn to his word, we learn what is good. And so what are good works? Good works are works that God has commanded in his word. If God has not commanded us to do something, we don't need to do it. If God has not forbidden us from doing something, we are free to do it. Good works are works that God has commanded in the scriptures. Okay, but why are they necessary? Why are they necessary? This is what James really deals with in our text. Christianity is all about faith. Uh, we, last week, we looked at Romans 4. We talked about faith. Uh, faith is central to the Christian life. Christ, Christians have creeds and confessions and doctrinal standards. Christians in the Bible and still today are sometimes called believers. We believe that we are saved through faith, justified through faith, forgiven through faith. Christianity teaches that when we believe in Jesus, we are united to Jesus by an invisible bond by his spirit, like in like marriage vows, join us, uh, faith joins us to Christ. So why are good works necessary? 
Well, maybe first I should ask the question, are they necessary? Uh, James, the brother of Jesus, tells us absolutely, without equivocation, yes. Now look again at verse 14. What good is it, my brothers, if someone says he has faith but does not have works? Can that faith save him? I think if James uh, were writing today in the English language, he would have put air quotes around faith there. Right? He starts out, if someone says he has faith, and this is a claim, this person claims to be a Christian, but he has no works, can that, quote, faith save him? Now, James's question in context, I, I don't believe, is really about salvation directly. It's about faith. We might paraphrase that the last part. Is that real, true, saving faith? Faith without works. Is faith without works saving faith? And then James launches into his illustration in verses 15 and 16. If someone comes to you hungry and in rags and you say, peace, be warm and be filled, but do not help the person, what good is it? Your words affect nothing. They are no good, James is saying. And so James says in verse 17, so also faith by itself, if it does not have works, is dead. And you see what James is saying. Just as words without deeds are powerless, so faith without works is also powerless. In fact, it is dead, he says. And James' question, can that faith save him, is not to say, can faith save someone, but can that kind of faith, divorced from works, empty of works, can that kind of faith save? And his answer is no, that kind of faith is dead. So we have two kinds of faith here, a faith that does not have works and a faith that does have works. One saves, James says, the other does not. Now again, think, think, I think James would put air quotes around the faith that does not have works. It's, it's not a living faith, but a dead faith, he says. Some Christians would say, well, uh, what I do doesn't matter as long as I believe the right things. And James would disagree. How you live matters. Good works are necessary, which again brings us to the question, well, why? And James gives us three answers to that question. He says good works are necessary because they demonstrate true faith, because they are the fruit of mature faith, and because they are a part of a reciprocal relationship with our Father in heaven. Let's take those one at a time. Uh, first, good works are necessary because they demonstrate true faith. Look at verse 18. But someone will say, you have faith and I have works. Show me your faith apart from your works and I will show you my faith by my works. Now this verse has uh, been a, a bit difficult to understand uh, when it says, but someone will say, you have faith and I have works. Who is the you and the I of the hypothetical speaker? There are a couple of ways uh, of teasing this out, but mostly they end in the same place. So I'll just give you one. And I think the best way to understand this is actually to leave out the quotes at this point. There are no quotes in Greek. Uh, we use quotes in English to signify direct speech, but this is not direct speech so much as a summary of the content of what this someone says. It's as if I said to someone, you may say you've got a real job and I'm just a pastor. <laughs> Even though that begins with you may say, that's not direct speech. It's a summary of what the other person is saying from my perspective. You have a real job, I'm just a pastor. So the, the you is them and the I is me. Have I lost you yet? <laughs> so the you have faith in verse 18 refers to James's someone. And the I have works refers to James. 
Someone might say that you yourself have faith while I, James, have works. Okay, fine, says James. You say you have faith. Show me your faith apart from your works. Prove it. Let me see your faith. Demonstrate that you believe. How are you going to do that apart from works? But I, James says, will show you my faith by my works. Works demonstrate the reality of faith. Jesus says in John 13, 35, by this all people will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. Our works demonstrate our faith. How do people know we are Jesus' disciples? By our love. Faith is played out in time and space through works. It's not that faith is works, but it is demonstrated by works. Why? Because what we believe affects what we do. If I believe that this world is all there is, I'll live for the things of this life. It's all we've got. Get it while you can. If I believe I am the center of the universe, I will treat other people as if they are there to serve me. If I believe that God will only love me if, I will strive to live up and most likely end up riddled with guilt and insecurity because I know I fail. What we believe plays out in how we live. Good works demonstrate true faith. Without works, faith is dead. It is not true living faith. Lack of works gives the lie to the empty profession. And verse 19 just seals the deal here. In verse 19, James says, you believe that God is one, you do well. Even the demons believe and shudder. Mere faith, acknowledgement of the facts of Christianity doesn't make you any different from demons. The demons know the truth, but they don't have true saving faith. And yet even the demons live out their faith, uh, the faith that they have, they shudder at the thought of God because they know that he is holy and they are not and their judgment is coming. And so even the demons live out their knowledge of God, they shudder, but that's not saving faith. So good works are necessary uh, first because they, they demonstrate true faith in Christ. Faith plays itself out through our works. But second, because they are the fruit of mature faith. Verses 20 to 23. Do you want to be shown, you foolish person, that faith apart from works is useless? Was not Abraham our father justified by works when he offered up his son Isaac on the altar? You see that faith was active along with his works and faith was completed by his works and the scripture was fulfilled that says Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness. Now, I think what trips us up in these verses is we assume the word justified carries its full theological weight. I don't think that's the case. You know, the Greek word for deacons is diakonos, and in Romans 13, 4, civil rulers are called the diakonos of God. Now, Nero was not a deacon, and neither is the U.S. president, but they are God's servants for justice. The Greek word for the church is ekklesia, and in Acts 19, there's a mob of craftsmen angry at the preaching of Paul because they made their living crafting idols, and we're told in Acts 19:33 that the ekklesia was in confusion. As true as that might be of some churches at some times, uh, Acts 19 is not talking about the church, but the mob of unruly people whipped up by Demetrius the silversmith. 
And here's the point. Just because a Greek word is used in the Bible doesn't mean it bears its full theological meaning. The word for justified theologically means to be declared righteous. That is what the word means, to be declared righteous. And we have this doctrine, justification by faith, which we talked about last week. But it can generally mean simply vindicated. Uh, Jesus at one point said wisdom is, is justified or vindicated by its fruit. What is the point of question here? What kind of faith saves? Is faith without works real faith? And so in verse 18, James says, I will show you my faith by my works. What is real faith? Faith demonstrated by works. And so in verse 21, we should read, was not Abraham our father shown to be in the right by works? Or was not Abraham's faith demonstrated to be genuine faith by his works? And so verse 22, he says, you see that faith was active along with his works and was completed by his works. Abraham's faith literally uh, worked with his works and was completed or perfected or reached its maturity by his works. Abraham's works were the fruit of mature faith. His faith matured and works were the inevitable result. When faith grows up, it bears the fruit of works. Uh, then comes verse 23, and the scripture was fulfilled that says Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness. Now, now think with me for a moment. Uh, how are those words fulfilled in Abraham's act mentioned in uh, verse 21 of offering up his son Isaac? In Genesis 15, God made promises to Abraham. Abraham believed those promises, and we are told in Genesis 15, God counted it to him as righteousness. When was Abraham counted righteous? In Genesis 15, when he believed. Well, how is that fulfilled in Genesis chapter 22, when Abraham offers up his son Isaac? Genesis 15 is not a prophecy. It's not a promise even, it's just a statement. Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness. How does that reach its fullness over 20 years later in the offering up of Isaac? It's clearly not saying Abraham was not really counted righteous before that. That would flatly contradict Genesis 15. And so the answer can only be that Abraham's faith through which he was counted righteous came to maturity and bore fruit. It came to maturity, to fullness. It reached its goal, its end, its telos. Now, the other example that James gives is Rahab in verse 25. He says, and in the same way was not also Rahab, the prostitute, justified by works when she received the messengers and sent them out by another way? Why give this other example? Well, first, I mean, notice the similarity. Uh, James doesn't mention Abraham, uh, Rahab's faith, but if you know the story, it's clearly there. In Joshua 2, Rahab professes faith in the true God. She says, the Lord your God, he is God in the heavens above and on the earth beneath. But her faith is not all talk. She acts based on her beliefs. Her faith works itself out in deeds. But why mention her here? Uh, why, we already have Abraham as an example. Why do we need this other example? Well, one reason is to give a contrast to Abraham. Uh, think about how different they are. Uh, one is a man, the other is a woman. One is a Jew, the other is a Gentile. One old, uh, the other at least relatively younger. One a patriarch, the other a prostitute. Both are sinners, of course, but Rahab is a sinner by vocation. And so James says, who are works important for? Male and female, Jew and Gentile, old and young, sinners and saints. Faith is always demonstrated through works because works are the mature fruit of real faith. 
And so good works are necessary, one, because they demonstrate true faith, two, because they are the fruit of mature faith, and three, because they are a part of a reciprocal relationship. Verse 23 not only says, by his works, Abraham fulfilled the scriptures, it also says, and he was called a friend of God. Abraham is called God's friend in 2 Chronicles 27 and in Isaiah 41.8. What is it about Abraham's works that point to him as a friend of God? Well, friendship is a unique relationship. Uh, Certain relationships are by blood, right? Familial relationships, children, parents, cousins, etc. Other relationships are legal, uh, the covenant of marriage, political representation in government, financial and economic relationships. Friendship is none of these things. It is neither by blood nor law. True friendship involves a special and dangerous kind of intimacy. But among other things, friendship is based on walking in the same direction. There is no friendship apart from shared life, a willingness to walk together. Faith is, among other things, the entrance into a relationship with God, right? While faith never ends, we then work out that relationship in time and space as we live our lives walking with God, serving him, loving him, obeying him, delighting in him. Now, James ends uh, verse 26 uh, by saying this, for as the body apart from the spirit is dead, so also faith apart from works is dead. See, our relationship with God devoid of a life lived with God, what is that? It's, It's nothing, it's dead, it's empty, it's all talk. You can't say you love someone and then ignore them. Actions speak louder than words, we say. If you get married and then move to the other side of the planet, that marriage is dead. It's a marriage in name only. Wedding, the wedding day leads to a life of walking together. Now, some people think, well, I'm a, therefore, I'm a pretty good person because I, I care for the poor or I do my devotions or I keep a clean yard. And that is not what James is saying. If you want to understand being right with God, turn to Romans 4. Blessed is the man whose sin is forgiven. But James is speaking into that tendency to so emphasize faith that works are given up as unimportant. But Christianity is not a mere intellectual exercise. Faith is not simply intellectual assent. One commentator put it like this. He said the tendency uh, can take the form of a compulsive doctrinal correctness or ritual conformity. The mark, then, of a good Christian can become the fervent affirmation of the right confessional formulae or a pledge of allegiance to the inspiration of Scripture or an insistence on the inerrancy of a leader or the dedication to the proper liturgical forms. It can also take the form of an obsessive use of religious language, he says, as though faith were a matter of a style of speech and that devotion to a person could be demonstrated best by the number of times his name was mentioned. The mark of a good Christian can become the constant invocation of the Lord in every conversation. Uh, But he goes on to say the Christian life is not like that. It's, It's not a matter of doctrine or ritual, but a matter of sustained moral presence in the world. Now, again, it's not an either or, don't misunderstand, but it's a both and. Faith demonstrated by works. Your wife knows you love her, not just because you said I do, And not even just because you say, I love you. Your wife knows you love her because you serve her and care for her. You love her as an action. 
The rest of the New Testament agrees with this understanding of faith, that faith that gives birth to works. Paul says in Galatians 5, 6, for in Christ Jesus, neither circumcision nor uncircumcision counts for anything, but only faith working through love. Again, he says in 1 Corinthians 13, 2, if I have all faith so as to remove mountains but have not love, I am nothing. And John says this in 1 John 3, 16. He says, by this we know love, that Jesus laid down his life for us and we ought to lay down our lives for the brothers. See, our, our standard for this faith working through love, of course, is Jesus. And Jesus came to give us living faith, to make us new creatures. He not only uh, modeled that by his death on the cross, he also took on our deadness on the cross and in the grave and then rose that we too might walk in newness of life. Romans 6, 4 says, we were buried therefore with him by baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. By faith in Jesus, we are connected with the life-giving power of Jesus. Faith in a living Christ should be a living faith. If you believe that Jesus died for your sin and rose again from the dead, then you are forgiven in Jesus and can now walk in newness of life. And so Paul says in Colossians 2, 6, therefore, as you received Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk in him. And John says in 1 John 2, 6, whoever says he abides in him ought to walk in the same manner in which he walked. And so seek to honor Jesus in how you relate to people. Do not show partiality, as James encourages, but care for the poor and needy. Show hospitality like both Abraham and Rahab. Don't fight and quarrel to get your own way. Be careful with your tongue. Use your words to build up and not tear down. In other words, do not be hearers only, but doers of the word. And so good works are those things God has commanded in his word. It, it's being a doer of the word and not a hearer only. The good works are necessary because works demonstrate true faith. They're the natural fruit of mature faith and the outworking of faith in relationship with the triune God. So that's what are good works and why are they necessary? A third comes the question, maybe some of you have been thinking as we've been talking through this, okay, well, what do I do if I don't have them? For some of you, this text simply acts as an encouragement to live the Christian life, which it is. But for others, this can be a discouraging text. I mean, what if I don't have any works? What if I struggle with sin? What, what does that say about my faith? Is my faith dead? Am I, am I not really a Christian? Am I not actually saved? Let, let me say three things. First, slow down. Take a breath. Before everyone in the room says, I have no works, my faith is dead, I'm clearly not a Christian, let's, let's, let's test that out a little bit. What counts as works? Striving counts. Groaning counts. Floundering counts. When you catch a fish, take it off the hook, and it's flopping around on the ground, it's still alive. Newborn babies cry. Uh, they don't do a whole lot else. Uh, they wet themselves. They, they fight what's good for them, sleep, and they cry. Now, that's not maturity, but it is a sign of life. James is saying faith is perfected in works. The trajectory of faith is works. Abraham believed and it was counted to him as righteous in Genesis 15. That faith came to maturity in Genesis 22. How long did it take for Abraham's faith to come to that maturity? About 25 years. 
The question is not, are you already fully formed, complete, and mature? That would be none of us. The question is, are you growing? Living things grow. Is your faith alive? If your faith is alive, you will be growing. Even if for a season it's only growing in desire or conviction of your sin. Sometimes we're growing in that. What counts as growth is not speed or distance, but direction. You don't bulldoze a sapling because it's not yet a tree. You wait, you feed it, you water it, you give it time to grow and flourish and mature. You may say, but I've been a Christian for so long and I've only grown so little. Okay, fine, but you've grown. How have you grown? What's different now than a year ago or five years ago or 10 years ago? Do you see your sin more? Do you see your apathy to your sin more? That's growth. Now, what are the next steps you can take? Don't wallow in where you are not. Take steps toward where you are going. But you might say, well, what if I truly have no good works? I see no growth. I see nothing at all. What if I am a double-minded person? What if I'm a friend of the world, as James says? Well, I have good news for you. Uh, You don't need to despair. You, You don't need to give up. You don't need to call it quits. Repent and trust in Jesus. James puts it like this in James 4, 4, again, you adulterous people, do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. Or do you suppose it is to no purpose that the scripture says he yearns jealously over the spirit that he has made to dwell in us? But he gives more grace. Therefore, it says God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. Submit yourselves to God. Resist the devil and he will flee from you. Draw near to God and he will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. Be wretched and mourn and weep. Let your laughter be turned to mourning and your joy to gloom. Humble yourselves before the Lord and he will exalt you. You see, repentance is always an option. Humbling ourselves before God. What are you loving more than Jesus? Own it. Confess it. Weep over your hard heart. Be honest about your hardness of heart. Humble yourself before the Lord. Repent. He is quick to forgive. He is quicker to forgive than we are to repent. Which brings us to our final point. Third, remember, uh, he gives more grace. Uh, We we just read about it, but it's all over James. Uh, First, remember, we're not saved by works, but through the gospel. James says in James 1.21, receive with meekness the implanted word which is able to save your souls. It's the gospel that saves. It's the gospel that grows us. It's the gospel that matures us. Read it, believe it, receive it, rest in it. Second, remember the Lord. Good works flow from remembering our good God. James 5, 8, you also be patient, a good work. Establish your hearts for the coming of the Lord is at hand. Jesus is going to return, he says. Believe it and let that shape the way you live. A few verses later, he says, you have seen the purpose of the Lord, how the Lord is compassionate and merciful. Remember his purposes. Remember God's compassion. Remember God's mercy. Jesus does not just say he loves you. He acted by going to the cross and giving of what he had himself for our sins. He served, he worked, he bled, he died for us. Remember the gospel, remember the Lord, and remember he gives more grace. More than yesterday, his mercies are new every morning. 
more than you have. James says, you do not have because you do not ask. Do you need more grace? Ask for grace. God will give it in his time for his purposes, but be patient and wait on the Lord. He gives more grace, more than yesterday, more than you have, as much as you need. God does not eke out grace little by little. He is not in heaven thinking, didn't I just show you grace yesterday? I think you're getting a bit greedy. Why don't you come back tomorrow? There is grace in abundance. Christ bore our sins in his body on the cross. He has exhausted the power of sin. He has purchased reconciliation with our Father, the favor of God. He has poured out his spirit onto his church. Run to him, draw near to God, and he will draw near to you. Let's pray. Our Father, we we run to you. We need your grace. We need your grace again today. We need more than we had yesterday. We need your grace ever increasing. Help us, Father, to walk by faith in a way that glorifies Christ. We pray in Jesus' name, amen.